Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. But talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. All right, we've got a terrific panel tonight. I'm very excited to have these guys. Let's get right to it. Back for round two on the panel. Uh, the first guy is a devel- was the developer of the Sarah Connor Chronicles. He was most recently on the Fox series The Finder, and his script The Asset was recently ordered to pilot by Fox. And the other guy was formerly of Will & Grace, among a number of other programs uh, he's in the midst of directing an episode of Desperate Housewives, so we thank him for being here. And he's currently developing a series based on the career and friendship of Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger. Please welcome Josh Friedman and Jeff Greenstein. Thanks, you guys. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hey, thank you. We have a lot to talk about since You're last awesome. year. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> uh, next up, after a career working as a producer with Kevin Williamson, our next panelist joined the staff of Kyle XY as co-producer before reteaming with Williamson to develop the book series The Vampire Diaries for CW, where she is currently the showrunner and executive producer. Please welcome Julie Pleck. Welcome, Hi. Julie. And finally, after a fruitful early career working with Chris Carter on Harsh Realm, The X-Files, and its spin-off, The Lone Gunman, in 2008, our final panelist created AMC's Breaking Bad. Please welcome Vince Gilligan. Thanks for dressing up, Vince. <laughs> this is how I usually look. Yeah, yeah. Like, I you do a Hitchcock thing, right? It was either this or the opera cape and the Golamay diaper. So, I, I do not normally. Where I'm going to the, I'm very lucky to be going to the SAG Awards immediately yeah. after this because of my wonderful cast. Well so, deserved. Uh, so, well deserved. Thank you. so that's that's why. That's what this is about. Well, it's only getting warmer in here, so please feel free. <laughs> um, thank you guys so much for being here. I'm very excited about this panel. I'm just going to spend the whole time talking about how excited I am. Great. Is that cool? <laughs> um, I, I have questions for you. Uh, I told you backstage, we often start with breaking in. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm starting uh, with these things that I have to talk to you guys about. You two, take a break for a minute. Okay, good. <laughs> Uh, Vincent, no, you'll get to answer these two. <laughs> it, it we didn't get to it the last time you were here. Um, but, uh, Vince, we'll start with you on this question. But what I'm curious about uh, is what makes Breaking Bad a show that only you could have created? 
That is, what is the trademark uh, Vince Gilligan interests or uh, um, influence on that show? God, oh man, that's a tough. You start me with the tough ones. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what makes it uh, 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 unique to me. Um, I, I, I would. Well, you know, I, the best I can say is. Uh, I was uh, approaching 40 years old when I when I first came up with the idea, and I was, I was thinking in terms of, uh, man, I am about to just have a major midlife crisis, and uh, might be interesting to uh, to do to do a show about a guy having the world's worst uh, midlife crisis, <laughs> uh, or end of life crisis, perhaps. Uh, but then again, that doesn't make it super unique because everyone, you know, has that on some level or another if they, if they are lucky to live long enough. But the approach uh, to that midlife crisis is something I think probably only you could have brought. Where I don't want to say where did the idea come from, but that's really what I'm asking. Okay, well, <laughs> I was talking on the phone to a buddy, a guy who's uh, known since 1986. He and I went to NYU film school together. And uh, uh, this was, uh, he had been on the X-Files with me as a writer, and he and I were, were talking one day, and uh, what are we going to do now? This is about 2004, so we'd been off the X-Files for about two years, and, and, and we were just like, man, what do we, you know, we're, we're in trouble. We're not making any money. We're about to lose our Writers Guild insurance. Should we go, you know, be greeters at Walmart? You know, <laughs> you know, that's about all we're fit for. And he said, uh, you know, why don't we put a meth lab in the back of an RV? You know, see the world, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was. I don't know where the idea came from, but that was when the idea mm-hmm. hit. That was when. Uh, that was the moment when, uh, boom, uh, this character who did not at that point have a name, but who became Walter White, popped into my head. And I think, if there's anything unique to me about this show, again, I know it's funny. It's hard to think in terms of what's unique. Uh, but but I, I, I tell you what, I liked. I, I loved. For instance, I love The Sopranos. Great show. That was a show where when you meet Tony Soprano, he was a guy born into a world of crime. He was, he was you know, you see his crazy mother who was a you know, criminal herself, and you know his, his, his uh, deceased father was a criminal. I like the idea of approaching a crime show from my point of view as in someone who'd be too afraid to tear the mattress tag off a mattress in case, you know, black ops guys would come repelling in in the backyard. I'm just a big weenie. There's no way I'd break the law, not because I'm particularly moral, but because I, I would be scared of the consequences. And I like the idea of approaching a bad guy character from zero, from a starting point of zero, from never having jaywalked or littered to, you know, doing some of the crazy shit Walter White does. Can we curse in this thing? Is it, is it, okay. It's encouraged. It's encouraged. <laughs> and... Uh, so anyway, then it gets... That's, I, I, like, that was, I like the idea of... You know what would I do if I suddenly decided to become a criminal? How would I approach it? The the process, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Was was a big part of what appealed to me, uh, delineating the process of transformation of be going from a a normal schlub to a to a bad guy and ultimately to a kingpin. Was this a transformation that you had been able to explore previously, either on X Files or Lone Gunman or you know any of the stuff you had worked on before? Uh, drawing a blank off the top of my head about which particular episode, but. But probably on the X-Files, there was a, a time or two where, where I wrote or had a hand in, in working on a standalone episode in which someone perhaps uh, was, 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 was uh, blessed or cursed with some sort of a brand new power that led them, you know, in, in the old Saw sense of uh, absolute power corrupting absolutely led them to 
you know, uh, use that power in a way not so nice, perhaps. I probably had those kind of moments in the X-Files, although for the life of me, I can't think of an uh, example off the top of my head. But, but that, that's sort of a time-honored story, I suppose, of someone being bitten by a radioactive spider or whatever and using that power thus derived for either good or bad. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. Um, we'll get back to some of this past work in a minute. Uh, but Julie, you developed Vampire Diaries with a couple of people. Yes. Uh, but what did you bring to it? What do you think is your point of view? How did you find entry into this property? Um, interestingly enough, that the whole experience of what brought it together was fairly serendipitous in that I had just spent the, probably a year reading all the Twilight books because I, <laughs> I love YA stuff. I love, you know, I love, um, I've always been a reader, and every now and then on vacations I'll catch up on, you know, what, what the kids are reading, as they say. And apparently I'm just a kid, too, because I was reading, like, oh, my God, this is so cheesy and horrible and love it. And, like, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and Kevin and I had worked together and been, you know, friends off and on for 15 years. And we're having a lunch with a friend of ours who we also worked with back in the day, who was an executive at the CW at the time. And I was I think Twilight was due to come out within like a week. And I'm like, I'm so seeing that movie. I can't wait. <laughs> Vampires and uh, made a joke about how it would be nice to do a, a vampire show, except that there's no way that anybody, anybody would be wise to put another vampire show on the air. Because between Twilight and True Blood, the sort of the world had been world had been kind of harvested and uh and jen breslow our friend said well actually we want to we've got this book property that we've been trying to find writers for and she goes nobody wants to write it everybody keeps passing uh she said because nobody thinks they can do a vampire show on television and uh and kevin's like looked at me he's like we can do that and i'm like (laughs) (laughs) and i said yeah totally we could do that (laughs) um it'd be new and fresh and never been done before um yeah sure why not and she said, she, she goes, she's like, you guys seriously don't fuck with me because I am going to get up from this lunch table and go upstairs to my office and call your agents and make a deal. And, and we were just kind of like hanging and having a friend lunch. And we just kind of said, sure, why not? You know? And I think, you know, Kevin had just gone through something very, very, very intensely personal in his life. And I, you know, my life is one up and down of intensely personal moments. And the two of us who love each other dearly and have spent a lot of our life together, um, kind of really wanted to work with each other in that moment and somebody could have probably said hey you know here's a you know here's a phone book and you know and 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 latin and figure something out and we probably like sure yeah whatever anything um but it was in digging into the show that we uh that we sort of like were able to kind of eventually look past all the similarities and set up and premise and all those things that we very much wanted to not cannibalize anybody else's work, you know, and found kind of the core of of what I certainly believe the show is, and I think he does as well, which is this whole, like, profound idea of loss and loneliness that can really be filled up with love. And, um, and so for two tragic, tragic folks like him and myself, and, you know, <laughs> and uh, very... I think the beauty of Kevin is he's very, very, very cynical, but has a deep romantic core. And I'm deeply, deeply romantic, but have this sort of tragic cynicism. And so what we each bring to each other is ultimately where we were able to find the tone and the sort of point of it all in the show, in spite of, you know, it having been done, so to speak. How did... I'm curious about that, because it's a question that gets asked a lot when you're pitching a take on something, you know, and finding that core is very important, obviously. Uh, Was it something you were conscious of as you guys were writing the pilot or even pitching what the pilot would be? 
Yeah, I mean, the pilot the pilot was sort of set in stone in a weird way because these books, which had been written back in 1991, there was about five or six of them at the time, and they, they were so old and they were very dated, but the central premise was very, very, very clear, which is high school girl meets a vampire, uh, you know, fall instantly madly in love, and he kind of shakes her world up, and and then his brother shows up into town and, and screws with both of their heads, and... Um, and that is, with minus the brother, I mean, that is Twilight. So there, you know, we had to kind of look at it and say, oh, okay. So, I mean, down to, like, moments and scenes in these books that are the same. And you're like, okay, we're going to get killed for this. But, but you want to honor the source material in the same way that you want to um, find a fresh point of view. And so, really, what we, what we just decided in the pilot was let us, let us just buy ourselves into this premise, which is so been done and let us introduce a world of characters and a town and just kind of begin and hope that people want to be on that road with us long enough for us to lead them into what we know the show is and I think that um, it wasn't until like two episodes later where we were trying to break a story and this character of Damon Salvatore who's the you know the bad boy villain and you know everything's a quip and a sarcastic comment um ends up at the end of the episode in a very private moment taking a beat with the heroine who he to this point has done nothing but ravage and abuse and uh, and you get this wonderful moment where he just watches her sleep and you understand that oh this guy isn't just angry this guy has lost something this guy is is terribly terribly sad and once we once we found the foundation in the brotherhood and the and the and the loss that these brothers had experienced then we were able to kind of just sink in and let it all grow from there. Interesting. Um, good. We'll, we'll pick up there. Uh, Jeff, I'm curious about when last we left you. Yes. Uh, you were uh, <laughs> making your way through Desperate Housewives yeah. and you're directing your second episode? This is my third. Third episode. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but you're also writing this pilot. Yes. And it's someone else's story. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how are you injecting yourself into it? Well, and tell um, us a little bit about the politics. I'm, well, I'm going to try and shorthand this because I'm so much more interested in these two than I am in myself. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, this actually, uh, uh, th- this show came to me through my agency, and that never ever happens. And um, they uh, they came to me with this idea, saying, "Would you be interested in doing a show based on the partnership of these two women, Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Fanniger, um, who were the architects of uh, City Restaurant, which, when I moved here in 1985, was the temple of cuisine and kind of the hottest place in town?" Um, and I said, "No." Uh, because I don't know anything about cooking. I don't understand people who cook. Um, I swear to God, before I came here, my, my lunch was eating two oranges over the sink. Um, so I, I just was like, I'm not interested in that. And I said, beyond that, uh, my wife is partners with another woman in a small bakery in Studio City. And so she'll kill me if I do a show about two women like in business together, she'll kill me. So I said no. But it's and also, if I can just interrupt yes. for a sec, for those of you who haven't heard the podcast that Jeff was on, which is in the first handful, um, it's not outside you know your purview. Absolutely, it, we, you kind of know why you were approached. Yeah, this. I we mean, I, I think yeah, I think the reason that I was uh, you know approached for it is I do like writing uh, strong, intelligent women who are not desi- who are not defined by their desire to hook up with uh, guys or babies. Um, um, and, um, 
No, I just I, – I have – I mean, this is something that I've, I've said in so many pitch meetings that it's actually become kind of rote for me. But I'm really, really not interested in Rachel's. Um, I worked on the first year of Friends. Um, I understand Rachel, but the sweet, faintly dim girl who ran away from her own wedding because she wanted a little more out of life, I just feel I've seen that way too often. And so for me, I'm more interested in stronger, perhaps a little older, more well-rounded, intelligent, self-actualizing women who make things happen for themselves and don't need a guy or motherhood to define them. I love women. I love... Oh, thank you, guys. Wow. Um, thank you. I, that really wasn't supposed to be an applause line, but thank you. Um, so, um, and I've written about this a number of times, and I think it's one of the reasons that I have had so much fun writing Desperate Housewives, in spite of the fact that some of those women have a little touch of Rachel to them. Uh, they are, they, to the extent they can, be strong and self-defining. So I believe that's why I was approached to do this. I also did a show in the mid-'90s called Partners, um, which was about two guys who were best friends and partners in an architectural firm and how their relationship changes when one of them gets engaged. And so the messiness of close personal relationships that overlap with business relationships and have a romantic comedy component to that was not alien to me either. So I think that's why they came to me. But as I said, I had a lot of reasons for saying just no. But then I heard this other aspect to their story that I found really fascinating, which is, and again, I'm going to shorthand this because because Julie's much more interesting than I am. Um, but bear with me. Um, um, uh, but uh, the, the, the story of the birth of City Restaurant is that Susan and Mary Sue were running a little cafe, really out of a hallway alongside L- LAI Works. And Susan, who was always kind of the spark plug of the partnership, the one that was always driving them to bigger and better things, said, we should open a big, full-fledged restaurant, and the perfect person to design it is my ex-husband. And she had uh, – her ex-husband, Josh, uh, they had broken up when Susan realized she was a lesbian. And so Josh was off in London at architecture school and somewhat embittered, and, but she thought that she could lure him back to do this. Susan's secret agenda was to hook him up with Mary Sue. Uh, <laughs> And who had had a kind of ill-starred romantic life up to that point. Not only did it work, um, but Mary Sue and Josh have two, you know, two young boys. They're still married. Uh, it worked out. Uh, Josh designed City Restaurant, even though he never designed anything before. It won all sorts of awards. It was tremendously successful. So it kind That's of worked. Awesome. So when I, yeah. So when I heard that, I said, if I said, if you want to do that story, if you want to do the story of the birth of that dream and the birth of that relationship, uh, and like two girls who are 25 and naive and think they can pull off something like this, I said, then I will do that show. And also, the idea of doing a mid-80s period piece I thought would be super fun. Um, So that's the show we pitched and sold, and I turned in the draft a couple of weeks ago, and I'm waiting to hear. It's at ABC. Um, Call your congressman. um, His name is Paul Lee. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's what I'm waiting to hear. But but that's why I dialed in, is because the relationship, all of a sudden, that three-way complex relationship sounded really provocative. I didn't feel like I'd seen it before. And my wife said, what are you, an idiot? You have to do this, even though it's going to be a little bit about me and my partner, you know. Uh, but so anyway, that's, that's how I got on board. Uh, we're going to keep having you back on the panel until, <laughs> until the show goes. Um, Josh, when last we left you, you were uh, about to start on The Finder, I believe. I'd just been dumped by Fox, right? Yes. Lock and key had just you, been Yes. Yeah. Lock and key. I think it hadn't even not been picked up yet, or it was about close. We're but anyway. Close, we were close to not getting picked yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> you you were entering into uh, 
dump adjacent. Yes, we're <laughs> dump adjacent. Yeah. You were entering into this job on the Finder and developing your own stuff with a new attitude, Josh 2.0. Yes. <laughs> How'd yes. it go? How'd it go? Josh 2.0 is, was fairly successful. Um, uh, bring these people up to speed just briefly, if you would, on what Josh 1.0 was. Josh 1.0 was a motherfucker. Um, Josh 1.0 uh, torched his way through Warner Brothers in, in 31 flame-filled, passive-aggressive uh, episodes of Sarah Connor. I you know, it wasn't very passive-aggressive. It was aggressive. Um, and... Um, had a big sit down with uh, all the people who make money off of me who said um, you need to find another personality uh, that can keep getting you work so I invented Josh 2.0 uh, uh, who uh, s- did this pilot last year for Fox Lock and Key and Josh 2.0 was incredibly collaborative and very respectful and apologized to all the dumbasses at Fox who <laughs> had fucked him uh, during Sarah Connor. Um, hi, Mom. And, uh, and, and, and somehow actually convinced people to call him Josh 2.0 for about six months. And uh, So then Josh 2.0 got an overall deal at 20th, which is what everyone wanted. And, uh, except me, I think, because now I'm in it. And... Um, <laughs> And so well, when you're at 20th, most, a lot of places, but certainly nowadays, it used to be you could get deals and you could just sit and develop and sit on your ass and not do anything. Uh, now they make you work. And um, so I went to work consulting on the Finder while I started developing this uh, show. Um, that's the, the short version of Josh 2.0. Um, <laughs> the Finder stuff has been fantastic. It was very easy. Hart Hansen is a prince of an individual. I wrote one episode of the show out of the 13. Um, the network liked it so much that they pulled it from the number two spot it was supposed to run, and uh, it is TBD on the schedule. <laughs> but Josh 2.0 is okay with that. <laughs> Josh 2.0 understands that there are various mechanisms at work at the networks <laughs> that he has no control over. <laughs> so if at midnight on July 4th you happen to be watching Fox or any of its affiliates, and you see a new episode of The Finder that you've never seen before. That seems a little out of chronology for those of you who are following along on The Finder. Two, yeah. two point oh wrote, wrote that. Uh, I'm curious about whether Josh 2.0 presented himself in the room in a different way than maybe you did on Sarah Connor. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Sarah Connor was the show that I created, and it was, and I was in there every day, and it was a very intense show, very serialized show, and I ran the room. I mean, that was the thing that I, that I did. I did not run the room on the finder. I was just a guy. And um, it was really nice. <laughs> I'd never been in a room before. I mean, I'd never worked on someone else's show before. It was the first time I've ever worked on somebody else's show. Uh, and it was a whole different kind of show. It's very funny, uh, quirky procedural, like a, you know, a, a comedidral. Uh, I don't know what, what it is. Um, a, dra- a dramedary. Um, and and so it was completely different muscles, and I uh, and and it was it was definitely a challenge for me because there was a different way of working, and I had to kind of you know adjust to it like everybody else did. But it was fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun. And then I would sneak out and work on my pilot. Sure. Uh, I want to ask one more uh, question about Sarah Connor, and it's basically the question that these guys just answered, which is 
you know, what, what either attracted you to that material or how were you able to inject yourself into that material, your particular interests? I mean, I think my specialty is taking very commercial ideas and rendering them in the most non-commercial way possible. <laughs> how, um, how did that work with Sarah Connor? Because it well, seemed pretty commercial to me. kind of what I did. Um, I did not – someone – I had done something else for Warner Brothers previous to Sarah Connor, and I basically said to the people there, I'm going to go off on my own somewhere. If you want me to do something else and I'd like to work with you guys again, please bring me something that I can't bring you. And uh, Susan Rovner, who was in development there, called me up and said, okay, smartass, we have Terminator, and uh, we have the rights to that. Is that something you can't bring us? And I said, yeah, I, I, you're right. And, um, and, and they said, well, we want to do it you know, after T2 and before T3. And I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And so you want it to take place right around 1992 or whatever it was. And they said, no. <laughs> we don't want to do that. We want it to take place in the present day. Why would we want to take place, period, especially a non-period period? And I said, well, it's the, ter- it's the Terminator franchise. Time is very important. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not, uh, it's sort of circumscribed in a particular way. They, they care over there when things happen. And they said, well, it's got to be present day. And I went, well, okay, that's stupid. And I, I, I said, I'll set a meeting. And so I had a meet, you know, I had a meeting set, and I had like half an idea, but I didn't really have an idea. And I was out uh, to dinner with a friend the night before, and was that we were actually at some concert. We had gone, and we were out having sushi, and drinking, and I said, I have this fucking meeting the next day <laughs> on the Terminator. And I said, I have like half a pitch, except for the fact I have no idea. I, except it takes place in 1992. I mean, what the fuck do they want me to do? Jump up into the future? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, so, you know, that's, and, and so I went in the next day, I pitched it, and I said, and then they jumped to the future, and Peter Roth, who was sitting in his chair, literally fell out of his chair, stood up, clapped, and they gave me the job. I mean, it's never happened that way before. Um, you know, I don't know what I bring to it other than pull something out of your assness. <laughs> Seems to be working. Um, let's uh, talk for a minute um, about the fans of your shows. We don't have to talk about them specifically. But I had the pleasure of encountering some Vampire Diaries fans on Twitter. And I said, do you have any questions for Julie Plack? Boy, did they ever. Um, Julie, let's start with you. Uh, tell me about contending with or hearing from fans, and how does that play in the room on your show? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> We have this magnificent and and very powerful and very potent and very very passionate and borderline aggressive at certain points <laughs> fan base, which for us is amazing because in a, in a network like the CW and a show like Vampire Diaries on the CW, you 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 live and die by that passion and that you know. So with with everything I'm about to say, <laughs> that may sound um, com- complicated or and negative in any way. It, like let me preface that by saying. They are very, very important to us, and we love them. And it is, I mean, I think we have to say it <laughs> yeah. is a complicated relationship. It's a very, it's, it's a very complicated relationship. And the big, the big thing for us is, you know, we've got a show where the central premise of the show is a love triangle. And so by definition, if you're doing your job properly, there are going to be 
fans who really, really, really want to see it go one way, and then there are going to be other fans that really want to see it go the other way, and that is something that you have to cultivate and sustain for a very long time. And you know, our fans, because it's it's epic teen love, you know, an epic vampire love, feel very, very epically about it, and we'll take to we'll take to Twitter, and uh, and you know, Twitter, like I've had. Interventions pulled on me by my friends, my best friends in the world, one of whom is sitting in this room who could attest to it, where I'll be in a spiral. I will be in a self-loathing shame spiral because I am horrible, horrible. I'm ruining the show. I'm a hack. I'm horrible. I'm horrible. And they're like, what's going on with you? Everything's great. The show looks great. I'm like, somebody on Twitter said that I didn't deserve to be born. That, <laughs> that like, it was Mother's Day. I got a tweet, literally. I'm not kidding. On Mother's Day. Your mother does not deserve any respect for giving birth to you <laughs> on this Mother's Day. She should have had an abortion <laughs> because you killed Aunt Jenna. <laughs> So, um, yeah. So I'll be just like, like trying to get a script done, and I'm crying. <laughs> and uh, and and my friends are like, "Would you get the fuck off of Twitter, please?" Um, but but conversely, what what comes out of that is this sense of this organic, this this organic, like human think tank of awesomeness, you know, wherein you, it's like, I, I like to call it like the, the instant focus group, the instant market research in that you know instantly whether somebody is like feeling the way that you felt when you put that on the page or put it on the screen uh, um, or if something that you thought was very clear ultimately is not clear at all. And, uh, and so in a lot of ways, Twitter's been very valuable for us for that because we can have that kind of dialogue and interaction with our fans, but we we have to work very, 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 very hard in our own brains creatively and in the room to take it all in, to absorb it, and then to shut it out. Because it's, you know, it's a microcosmic universe when all is said and done. Um, you know, the online, especially the, the, the daily, minutely fan feedback part of it. Um, and, and sometimes it's one person in a hundred different names tweeting you the same thing. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's a small collective of very, very, very committed people who, you know, who are just the loudest at the moment. And if we start letting that dictate what road we travel and what path we take, then we're, we're, we're dead. And we, there have been moments where we've been going down a road and I've been like, oh, God, no, wait a second. Does anybody actually believe in what we're doing right now? Or are we just terrified to do it? any other way <laughs> because of like how people will react to us on Twitter and we'll pull back rein it back in a lot so it's a, it's a strange relationship yeah. Vince sort of the same question you, you know you also have rabid fans of Breaking Bad uh, how do you guys contend with them is it a, a similar story prouder than hell to have them uh, <laughs> amazed to this day that the show's even on the air but uh, uh, I, I, I never I've never been on Twitter. I've never been on Facebook. <laughs> I've never, I've never ever Googled myself. I, I don't it's ever very hard to, to get in touch with you for this. I, I, <laughs> we've been doing it for a year. Well, uh, and I, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad uh, you finally did because I'm having fun. It's fun. Uh, and it's not through any strength of moral character on my part. It's it's quite the opposite. I know myself pretty well, and I know 
everything uh, Julie just said. I, I, I know uh, it, it's a strange thing about human nature. We have, I've been so blessed with this show. Uh, I fear for, for its end because I fear that it will all be downhill from here, but for me, for my life. But, uh, but I, 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 the strange thing about human nature is even if you get 100 or 1,000 or whatever, wonderful, glowing, we love it, we love it, give, you know, it, it, all it takes is one, and that's the only one you remember, yep. and that's only one bad one, and that's all, and so I never look this stuff, this stuff up, I never do it, and not because of this extreme weakness on my part, not strength, because, because the good stuff is like heroin, you just want more and more of it, and the bad stuff is like, uh, you know, it leaves you in a fetal position, and, and so why, you know, fuck it, well, why, you know... <laughs> So we uh, we have uh, have six excellent writers, and we spend uh, like a, on a sequestered jury that will never end. We spend all this time in our writers' room, uh, uh, asking ourselves, you know, what's next for Walter White? What's what's his hope? What's his fear right at this moment? What's Skyler thinking? We just we just tell the story as best we can, uh, you know, uh, the seven of us together, and we don't uh, and and. My writers uh, probably, you know, some look stuff up on 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 on, on the internet. Uh, I've got one crazy editor who's always telling me, you know, I, I always tell her I don't want to know. And she says, you know, they were really ragging on you. And I'm like, shut the fuck up! <laughs> How often do I have to explain myself to you that this is not my gig? I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Mm. But and I don't read the reviews either. Uh, it's the same reason, you know, just because it has the imprimatur of being in a magazine or, or, or whatnot. Why? At, but I'm intensely grateful. I'm not. I'm not jaded about Do it. Do you I, pick I, up your Emmys? <laughs> I, I never, Are they never just get, sitting on the Never gotten one. Never gotten, no. never gotten an Emmy. Never. They look dangerous. They look pointy. <laughs> put an eye out on that thing. It's just as well. It's just as well. I've never had one. Uh, but. Uh, uh, I, I, again, it's not for, for being jaded. I, I keep all those reviews. Uh, uh, my assistants here uh, print stuff up, all the wonderful stuff, and they put it in binders for me because someday I will look through it. Wow. When, when it is uh, at a far remove emotionally. That's so I, I am intensely interested. But, it, it, you know, it's just like any other habit you get into or not get into. The more you don't do it, the more of a habit it is not to do it. So, uh, but but okay. all that stuff is saved and put away in those cardboard banker boxes, and someday I'll go uh, through all uh, of it. Stop making me love you so much. <laughs> I was going to say, stop making me hate myself so much. It's not, it's not strength of character or whatever. It's just I know, I've, you know, early on in the X-Files, uh, before I had X, before I knew how to, you know, once the, you know, the golden world of pornography was revealed to me that this was available on the Internet, before I actually had a computer that connected to the World Wide Web, you know, uh, it was like, uh, you know, they, someone in the office on X-Files would print something up and, you know, oh, this is great. Oh, they liked it. Ooh, oh, wait a minute. This guy didn't like it. Oh, you know, it's just, uh, ah, you know, it hurts. The good stuff is never good enough because it's like heroin. It's like you know more hot fudge in your Sunday, please. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know. Uh, you know. <laughs> and the bad stuff just like eh, 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 you know, like a knife. Wow. So uh, what's the point? You know, I don't know. That's very healthy. Mm. It's very healthy. <laughs> I think it's unhealthy. It'd be healthier to be able to read all of it. And, and, and say, oh, they like this, good. They don't like this, that's a good point. You know, it's just, that would be healthy. The same, I think though. it's the opposite yeah. of healthy, to be honest with you. I, 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 it I think it's here. the opposite of healthy, but All that's right. how I do it. So. Um, one other question about this fan base, Josh, on Sarah Connor. 
there had to be fan expectations coming into the show. <laughs> um, for a while, were I you think... aware of what the fans wanted, or I, for a while I thought my name wanted? was not Jim Cameron. <laughs> like I thought, I just put that on a piece, right? right? Yes, that's my name, not Jim Cameron. Two point oh. Two point oh. <laughs> Good. Well, I th- there was two. I mean, there was. I think that there was at the beginning there was the why are you guys doing this group of 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 fans or not fans or people who are and and it and that I sort of just ignored. I mean, that one was just like we're doing it, so <laughs> let's just do the best we can and hopefully and and, and it's it's going to be. It's going to honor, hopefully, the best of, of the franchise. And, uh, but you know, at some point, you have to make it your own. The fans that really, really hated me were actually the Sarah Connor fans. I mean, the ones who, over time, had expectations about the show. So it was sort of like the, the Jim Cameron like, you know, franchise group was a much smaller or less vocal group. Either they'd given up on it or they, they just weren't. You know, but the group that... Um, I think was you know most passionate both ways was the, were really the fans of the show I think as it should be um, I I read a lot of it and I mean and 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 look and, and sometimes it was good and sometimes it was good and sometimes it was bad I was often fascinated by when it was bad why you know there sometimes it was like oh good point or whatever and then sometimes it was like there were conspiracy theorists as to why I was doing things and I was like I almost wanted to call them up going. What are you talking about? I don't hate Summer Glau. Why would I hate Summer Glau? She's Summer Glau. I cast her. I was trying to cast her for 10 years. What, you think I'm just not putting her on the show in that scene? Because why? I've gone crazy? You know, and, and I, I... No, it was not the, is the answer. Um, and so there was a... You know, and, and, I, and I also... You, I, what I asked the writers on the show to do, because we had a lot of by the nature of the type of writer that we have on the show, they're very kind of tech-savvy, geek kind of uh, people. Um, I asked them not to go online and engage. Um, I said, if you want to go read, go read. I said, but, and if you want to go, I, I can't, you're a writer, I can't stop you. If you want to go write about your experience being on the show, if you have a blog, you want to talk about what it is to be a writer on the show, whatever. I said, but please don't go online after an episode, muck around with some crazy people, and answer their questions or defend decisions we made. I said, because I, don't, I, I feel like we have an, our, every week we broadcast our best argument for why we do what we do. If it doesn't, if it isn't what it is, if it doesn't come across, that's the way it is. But don't empower people by answering them because it only makes it you know it doesn't everyone thought well because then there were a couple of people who wouldn't listen to me and they're like it calms them down I went oh it does not calm them down ever um, so yeah they're there they're still there they have weekly uh, mm. synchronized um, there's viewing parties every Friday or Saturday night of Sarah Connor and they keep going through the entire series <laughs> over and over again and they all um, they have a chat a live chat room and they all synchronize you know the DVD player at a certain time wow. and That's they cool. and they watch it wow. on a Saturday night at X clock and they all talk about it or whatever wow. it's awesome you know yeah. um, Jeff when last you were here we got to hear a little bit about the Desperate Housewives room what we didn't get to talk about uh, is the Will and Grace room yeah which I would love to hear about how was that room run? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I'll say this. It was an extraordinarily close-knit group. Um, How it, big a to, group was it? it was, uh, I mean, we had about uh, in somewhere between 10 and 13 writers. Um, but uh, to the despair of every agent in town, we had very little turnover in the staff. Um, it was kind of right around, like, once things kind of congealed around season two and we got a certain core group of writers in place, nobody left. 
Um, and so the same group of people wrote the show really for almost five years. And then when uh, David and Max left, um, I had kind of helped help them run the show. And after David and Max, we were the creators of the show, left. And I ran the show along with Joni Marchenko. It was kind of still the same group of people. Um, and so uh, we were, you know, it, we were a very close-knit group of people who felt like a secret club. You know, and we would make decisions. One of the things that was fun about that show, for those of you who watched it, is we decided who was the cool guest star. And we decided who was the cool, like, frame, the cool cultural reference or cool pop culture reference. You know, like, we made a decision to put Macaulay Culkin in the show. Nobody said to us, like, ooh, it would be neat and trendy if you had Macaulay Culkin in the show. I'm going to be really honest. This will probably get me in trouble. But we, when I, the first year that I was running the show, which was season five, we were approached by Britney Spears and her manager saying she would really love to guest star on Will and & Grace. And I said, no. Um, I really thought that that was kind of a hacky move to have her on the show. I felt she would be using us rather than the other way around. We want to be using the celebrity. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm sorry to only talk about guest stars, but, it, but that was sort of, to me, indicative of the fact that we felt we were kind of, uh, you know, at the crossroads. We were like, uh, we were, uh, we were, because the show was socially progressive, because there was nothing like it on the air, because we had show night every Tuesday night, which was like gay Woodstock, like everyone would come out and go bananas just for, you know, just for Jack, like opening his mouth and saying hello. Um, uh, it was, in, I felt, we felt extraordinarily privileged, like we were a secret little group. Um, and, uh, and so in that regard, it was really, really fun to work on. Um, I'll also say that... Let me, let me just ask yes, a follow-up to that before you go on. Sure. Do you think you were given that kind of autonomy because of the success of the show? Yeah, we earned it. Yeah. I mean, we earned it. You know, that, in, you know I, as I said, I worked on the first year of Friends, which was, by November, a phenomenon, and by spring, the number one show in the country. Um, I'll never have that experience again. I don't know if it's possible to have that experience again on a scripted show, where you just go from... A, you know, I always say it's the, the, the paradigm is you go from saying, I work on a show called... X to saying I work on X, you know? So I remember being on a plane, like when I was, uh, I was going to visit my parents um, uh, during the years, during, during the months before the show premiered. We had written several episodes and I was talking to the woman in my seatmate. And she said, what do you do? I'm a TV writer. I work on a show called Friends. And then three months later, all you have to do is say, I work on Friends. People go, people go insane. Um, but uh, uh, Will and Grace was a slow, slow starter. You know, it started on Monday nights, then it was moved to Tuesday nights, and then it finally earned the right to be moved to Thursday nights. And then it was moved to an anchor slot. And so it slowly grew. Um, that said, you know, it, it did start getting Emmy nominations, and it won the Emmy for series in its second season, which was spectacular. Um, but by season three or season four, the network left us alone, and the studio left us alone. And they really, and Jimmy Burroughs was a big part of this as well. He always kind of created a firewall so that they couldn't kind of second-guess us. And I got so spoiled by that kind of treatment of just being, you know, having the respect. I, I hope it's like what you guys enjoy, you know, on your shows, having the respect where a network says they know what they're doing. They understand the show. We don't need to get in the way. If there's a problem, they're going to sniff it out before we do. Um, so as a result, quality of life on the show was extraordinarily high. Um, I have never had this experience before, but we would cancel, you know, it was one of those shows, we'd have a table read on Wednesday and shoot the following Tuesday night. So Friday was the last run-through day when we'd do a rewrite. There were days we'd cancel the Friday run-through because the script was in such good shape. We'd go home at 4 o'clock on a Thursday. We'd come in on Friday, talk about the next one up, go home at 2.30. 
I can't tell you. And you know what? And it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't that it was that we were phoning it in. We worked really, really hard. But we all had that, it, it was, there were no neophytes, and we all had a very deep understanding of our show. And so it was very easy to write. It was really fun. It was also very simple. There were only four regulars, and there were only two stories. And so it wasn't intricately plotted the way you guys do in your shows. It was really simple, simple moves, two acts, you know, um, not a lot of serialized storytelling until, like, uh, we started to do that in season five when I started running the show is we started telling stories that unfolded over a number of episodes. But it was, it was really easy and really fun. Uh, in a combination that I'm unlikely ever to see repeated. <laughs> I would imagine with a room where everybody does have a deep understanding of the show that when arguments happen, it's about very minute things. Yeah, you know, I mean... People will have different understanding of very small elements. Of yeah, I mean, uh, that's true. But there were also, I mean, season five of the show, again, I'm, I'm talking as if you guys are rabid fans of the show, so forgive me, <laughs> but we made a rather bold move in season five, and it's interesting you guys talking about your fan bases because um, in the, the first three or four years of Will and Grace was all about this interestingly dysfunctional yet mutually supportive relationship that Will and Grace had, um, which by season four I started to feel was almost hysterically neurotic um, uh, because... There's one thing about, like, you know, two seasons in when, we, when you think, you know, the reason Grace can't find Mr. Wright is because Mr. Wright is gay and he, she lives with him. Uh, by season four, that was pathetic. And honestly, it was kind of like, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're talented, go find somebody. And so we had this very bold idea in season five, which is let's let Grace get married. Let's let her meet an incredible guy and marry her off. Well... The fan base was very angry at Straighty messing up their show. Um, I would see stuff on the internet, because I'm not as strong as you are, Vince. Of course, I would go on there to say, how am I doing? I would see stuff, I'd read stuff, and I would see, why is Jeff Greenstein, why is Jeff Greenstein trying to ruin Willie Grace? He doesn't understand the show. Why did they let a straight guy run the show? Because ba 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 And like me, the world's gayest straight man. Um, uh, I'm the one that they pick on. Um, but, uh, but, but, uh, I was a dance major, for God's sake. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, to answer your question, that decision was very hotly debated. I mean, it was, you know, should we do this? Because we knew that it was rewriting the formula of the show in a really substantial way. Like, it, we could never go back to doing the kinds of stories we had done before. And if the relationship worked out, there would be dire consequences for Will and Grace's relationship. And if it didn't work out, there would be dire consequences. But we felt like season five, the show's middle-aged now. We're not going to do 10 more years of this show. Let's start messing with the formula. And we've done a little of that. I know your question was about Will and Grace. But we've done that on Desperate Housewives the past year. You know, we were always told Tom and Lynette, they're like the bedrock of the show. You know, Felicity Huffman and Doug Savant's character. Their marriage is bulletproof. Not anymore. Because when you're heading spoiler into... Alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. That was a year ago, Josh. I know, I know you're such a fan. <laughs> such a fan of Desperate Housewives, but they did... We, there were cracks in their marriage about a year ago. But anyway, them. but I we... Yeah. But, uh, but so that's the kind of stuff, you know, as a show reaches middle age, you start to do things like sure. that. Well, that's a good segue to yes. you, Julie. <laughs> middle age, what? <laughs> um, you know, you, the, the paradigm shifts so fast and so furiously on the Vampire Diaries. And I can't imagine this is something your room takes lightly. Um, tell me about how your room works, how you guys break story. Uh, oh, also, someone on the internet 
asks what breaking story means. So oh. please, someone explain that first. There you oh, go. oh, fantastic. There you go. Okay. It, well, a it's a it's looking at a blank white wall with nothing <laughs> written on it. So it's the equivalent of an artist with a canvas and paints and no mental picture whatsoever of what to actually paint. And the act of breaking story is to start with a concept of, oh, I'm going to paint a sunset, and then draw your basic lines, and then hate everything, and redo it all over again, and then eventually find the shadings until you have what amounts to a sunset that then you can pass off to uh, another (laughs) writer to then uh, make beautiful. That, that wow, that's yeah, weird. Really? Yeah, but that's you know, I mean, well, basically, but getting back to the blank white wall, which of course is the the worst for me. Um, the worst. I hate. I hate it. I hate it to the point where I won't go in the room unless there's something written on the wall, which is a luxury I've at least like you know <laughs> created for myself by being very busy doing other things. Um, but it's we start our show is very difficult, as I'm sure as everybody's show. We we beat ourselves up a lot because we don't have a formula. There's no real formula in The Vampire Diaries. So every, every episode is like breaking a movie from scratch. And you have characters, obviously, that you're working with, and you have situations where you've left yourself and you have things that you want to accomplish, but there's no like, oh, in Act 1, we you know, introduce the, the, the big monster, and then by Act 3, we're in battle, and by Act 5, there's Vanquish, and 6 is denouement, emotional you know, resolution, and uh, there's no formula like that. And so, so you've you're, seen Supernatural? Yeah. <laughs> 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 so we have, every week, we have to ask ourselves, like, what, okay... Well, what's going to happen here, and, and how's it going to go? And what we, the formula that we've created for ourselves, which works about 10% of the time, but it's better than zero, is um, what, is the big, what is the big emotional point of view that we want to take away at the end of this episode? What do we want to have accomplished spiritually, I guess, for lack of a better word? Um, you know, what, who's, who's tragic and why? And, and what, mo- what moves them from one point to the next within this episode because then once we have a once we can get to that place of like boy you know if this is the episode where you know Stefan admits blah blah to you know his brother um, then everything else kind of doesn't matter you know because then then that's when you move from the intangible element to the tangible elements which is well we've got a mythology in play so we've got a you know we've got a keep on that road map and we've got we've to keep down that path. We've got a villain making a move so we've got to either let the villain succeed or fail and how does that happen? We've got relationships in play so where do those relationships go? And so then when we can start asking ourselves those questions and answering it becomes a lot m- more e- easy which is <laughs> so awful but more often than not when we get into a bind story-wise on our, on our episodes is when we realize that that we've got no, we've got everything that, everything that we're doing feels like we've just done it. And, you know, and yet formula is a safety net that you're supposed to be able to like bounce in, like, you know, a raft in a pool. You're able to say like, oh, that we've done that, that'll work because it's a, it's a puzzle, it's a formula. But then when the formula so, sort of makes you feel like you're just repeating yourself, then that's when we go into despair zone. And, and usually that's when we start... Kevin has, a, Kevin has a trick which works like a charm and he is the best person at doing this of anybody I've ever met in my life and he has this brain which says okay, if this is the idea and this is just what everybody thinks it should be 
then how can it get turned completely inside out? How can I take this and rip it up and put it in a blender and let it, you know, hit on and let it just spew to the ceiling and rain down upon us? Because that's ultimately in our show where we have found most success, which is when you think you're going one way, all of a sudden, boom, it's a hard left or a hard right. And when, you, when you're pretty sure you figured it all out, boom, we pull the rug out from under you. And we just keep doing it again and again and again. Which goes back to the formula, which is trying to find those moments. So once you find in our show the wow, the cry, uh, and the and the, I say it laughingly and lovingly, the event, you know, because we we're notoriously cheesily loved and and loathed for our overuse of the of the town event or the high school event or the whatever. But I will tell you, man, and you know, it, it started it started as a network note at the very beginning. Like, what's the thing that draws them all together? And you know, you're like, oh, enough with the fucking network notes. Jesus. <laughs> but we will go and we will break a story and there'll be no unifying event and we will look at ourselves and be like, we have nothing. There is nothing to like hang our hat on. And then the instant we're like, well, what if it's the Miss Mystic Falls beauty pageant? <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, it's, it's epic, you know? So, anyway, that's... It, cool. The answer is there's no answer, <laughs> um, Just one follow-up on that. When, when you guys sat down to either pitch the show or do the pilot or whatever, you know, whatever the early stages were, uh, did you plan seasons in advance? No, we... Uh, I'll tell you, it's a miracle that this is working because, you know, Kev and I, basically, that lunch, that lunch that I talked about, it was in early November. It was the second week of November, and which pilot season was over done there you know they ordered a script i think they closed the deal the first week of december usually when everybody's handing in their pilots and they had they were they did the whole like oh we don't have any money left thing we were like all right well we're we're cool we'll just wait um and they found the money and they paid us and we wrote we broke and wrote the script in about three weeks and then um and then shot it it got instantly picked up instantly shot and then once we were done shooting it got instantly ordered a series and we start like i think the upfronts are may twenty. Second, the you know when the when they announce all the new shows, and on May twenty sixth, we started the writers' room, and by July first, we were shooting. So wow. there was like a five and a half week, six week writers' prep in when which did premiere, by the way, in, in, uh, September seventh. Wow, that's yeah. insane. So we basically, you know, we're doing twenty two episodes for that first year. We had no freaking clue what we were doing, so we had to find it as we went because we had never had the time to talk about what it was. He and I, weirdly enough, were very much in sync, but we didn't even talk with each other about what the show was. And so I think in my head coming in, I had just tonally a little bit logically and reasonably like a little bit of a Buffy attitude because I, I was a huge Buffy fan and he had never seen Buffy and so he, he didn't have that same sort of rhythmic context for it so he and I had a lot to work out in the beginning and so we both had to strip away our go-to easy things which his is the self-aware self-referential you know pop culture-y kind of party and mine is very much like that mean girl's kind of like oh when in doubt like make a snarky comment and both of us very like within the episode three I think we realized like neither of those things are working for the show so we had to train each other out of our voices and find the voice of the show and then by the time we got to episode 22 season one we were so burnt and so like just just bereft of any kind of like thought and love and joy and just exhausted so we 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 got i think eight days off in between season one and season two and i went to sat on a sat by the pool in cabo and like you know read a bunch of other books just to get somebody else's words in my head you know 
And then we did it all over again. And there was mm. no fucking way in hell that I was spending any of those eight days of my vacation talking about season two. So we just like dove back in, started season two, did it all over again. And now we're in season three doing it all over again. We know how we want it to end as far as as far as our heroes. We know there are destinies in our mind, but the roadmap to getting there is mm. like, eh, we'll just, you know, we'll just wow. keep going. <laughs> Uh, Vince, uh, similar question. We've heard quite a bit about the room on Breaking Bad uh, when we had Peter Gould here and <laughs> Jenny Hutchison here. Um, I'm curious, though, about what your experience was on X-Files and how you took that experience and subsequent experiences to running Breaking Bad. I, I, everything I know about running TV, I learned from the X-Files. I was so lucky to have that job. I was lucky to have seven years on it. Uh, because if I had never done that job, I, I, would, I, would not, I wouldn't be here today. You would have never heard of me. And, uh, we have ten minutes. Teach us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, was, um, it was, although one, one thing is different about Breaking Bad than, than X-Files. X-Files was a very uh, standalone-oriented show. There were, there was a, it was a hybrid. There were the mythology episodes, which I really never had much of a hand at all in, in creating. Uh, I was more the standalone guy. But... The writer's room on, on X-Files would be a, you know, meet, catch-as-catch-can sort of a meeting schedule. Uh, everyone would sort of get together uh, on no particular given schedule, and uh, Frank Spondis or Chris Carter would say, uh, you know, what, uh, where are you at? Which, where's your Aztec mummy versus the flying saucer idea, you know, and what, what about you? <laughs> oh, I get this thing where, you know, I don't know. Uh, and you'd, you'd throw these ideas around because these episodes stood alone. Uh, Breaking Bad is very different. Um, we are, I like to say, hyper-serialized. And so it is always in that sequestered uh, jury room. It's always us uh, as much as possible. I want all the writers in there. When they, I don't know how it got to this point, but they kind of leave to use the bathroom without asking. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I think, well, when did I let that slide? Uh, <laughs> I, because every time one of them leaves, and it's too late now, that horse is out of the barn. But, but once they leave, one of, once one of them leaves, I feel like I gotta, because I, I pee in an old Gatorade bottle. I, I'm committed, unlike the rest of them. I have uh, Gordon hold it for me, and I, no, I know I. No, I uh, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, Every time one of them leaves, I feel like uh, we got to catch everybody up. You know, it's it's so it's neurotic, but it's it's so hyper serialized. You need all hands on deck. But of course, when one writer in the batting lineup, as it as it were, goes off to write, uh, then it's sort of like Ten Little Indians. You know, one by one, the, the writers are going their own way to actually uh, write the scripts. But but the breaking process. Uh, you know, I got a question for you guys. Do you guys all use uh, whiteboards? Cards. Or, Car- yeah, White cards. Boards. Cards? Whiteboards. Whiteboards. I finally White- gave up cards, but I love cards. I miss mm-hmm. cards, and I actually tried to get the writers to go back to cards this this season because they all came in as whiteboard children, and I was, uh, a, mm. I was a card baby. Yeah, and, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our card, not only do we use cards, but they're color-coded yes. for each character. Oh, nice. So it's very easy when looking at a board to say how much Susan there is in an episode or how much Lynette there is oh, in an that's episode. Smart. And, or how much mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a separate color for the mystery thread in every episode. Yeah. It seems like dry erase boards are... I seem to hear more folks using those than cards, but but Chris Carter taught us to use index cards, and basically you got a three foot by five foot cork board and a bunch of thumbtacks and a bunch of index cards and the sharpie pen with the tip scrushed down just so, yep. 
and I and I write all the cards because I want one uniform handwriting throughout, and I've worked years on getting it in a calligraphic sense, somewhere, yeah. somewhere very legible. Right. And uh, and there's an art that that Chris Carter taught us about putting this stuff on cards, dry erase boards. I understand. The, the, the desire to use them, but they, they scare me because, you know, someone's going to be playing Nerf football and, and go long to catch the Nerf football and go r- bumping their shoulder up against this thing and wipe out a bunch of work. And, <laughs> and also, uh, dry, dry erase boards in the old editing sense are, are nonlinear, uh, uh, you know, yeah. in the old tape-to-tape editing sense versus, versus a linear sort of editing where you're like, I don't, I don't like this scene over here. Let's take the thumbtacks out. Yeah. Let's move it over here. But I was just wondering, because um, they seem to be in vogue now, uh, dry erase, which is fine. I've only seen dry erase boards in comedy rooms. I, we use them. Really? I used them on Sarah Connor, and I used them on The Finder. I, wow. But see, I like the nonlinear aspects huh. of them. Oh. We had, Sarah Connor, we had maybe eight big, full whiteboards, okay. and we used certain ones were for the episode, certain ones were for the season. Okay. And I liked, I liked the physicalness of, like, being able to sit back and actually be surrounded by the whole thing and yeah. see it. And we nice. actually had a board that we used to draw diagrams of time travel. Right. Sure. that became yeah. necessary at certain oh, yeah, points. Um, so, you know, I mean, I don't know. I brought whiteboards home. Like, I have them at my house mm. now. I mean, I just for my son. I mean, I – or the pens. That's cool. <laughs> By the way, whatever yeah. works for you. If it works to stand on your head and, you know, whatever. If it, whatever works for you, that's all that matters. It's all that matters. I was taught by – Mr. Frank Spotnitz, who uh, mm. comes out of the X-Files universe, and, and he came in Kyle XY very briefly for a four-week period, right when we were starting the series, to help out. And we, ha- we had no showrunner, and we had, no, um, we had nothing. We just had a show and an order, and we had to get words on the page. And, uh, and Frank, every time I try to impart Frank's system into, into the room that I'm in, but because I'm not in it enough, I fail, and I lose that battle. But he would... A writer would have to like put their cards together, bring them up, put them up, pitch the episode, pitch the beats, and then Frank would sit and massage beat to beat with these writers. And they were all we were all babies, we were green, you know. And so it was a really great. You understood not only like what the beat was, but what the beginning, middle, and an end mm. of the beat could be, and what your editorial transition point could be, and and what the thematic and tonal context of the scene could be. And like in a weird way, almost if you look at it like comedy, where the joke was, you know, yeah. and. And I, you know, I'm a big believer in writer discovery, and I think that a writer needs to go home and go away to discover a lot of this stuff, and it shouldn't all be birthed in the room a lot of times. But once you're there, being able to like work those beats so hard, when someone goes off to write, they're yeah. they're writing, yeah. you know. Yeah. It doesn't work all the time though. But I love that system because yeah. it feels so like clean. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I just one more quick question for each of you, and then we'll turn it over to the crowd. I, I mean, I have one million more questions, but I don't want to shortchange you guys. Um, we'll start with you, Vince. Uh, what is the fun part for you? Uh, you know, some people love being in the room. Some people love breaking stories. Some people love the actual writing. What's the fun part for the you? The fun part is having written past tense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, people say they like writing. I'm like, hell no. no. But I, I like having written. You know, if it's if it's uh, if it came out well, if it's something I'm proud of. But but you know it, it it's I I've always been someone who uh, is wired more to look backward than forward and I always enjoy things in hindsight even the moments that I know intellectually uh, held a lot of pain the pain of uh, I shouldn't say this being a guy but sort of that that childbirth sort of pain uh, or as close as I'll ever get to it 
there was a guy in the X-Files, uh, uh, a wonderful uh, uh, director, producer named Rob Bowman, who his, 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 uh, his big, uh, he had a couple catchphrases. One was chicks dig scars, which I always, <laughs> which I always uh, use. But the other one I always really uh, uh, tend, to, tend to keep in mind is uh, uh, the pain fades, but the glory remains. So uh, it's all, but you know, uh, it's more fun being on set, uh, you know, uh, than, than being in the writer's room. It's more fun directing. It's easier directing than writing. Directing's hard, but writing's harder. Uh, it's it's fun to be a producer and to be uh, to fly to Albuquerque and get the sky miles and and <laughs> and uh, and you know have people say, do you like uh, this cell phone or this cell phone for the guy to carry in his pocket? I mean, what color should the uh, should the hat be? You know, blah blah blah. It's those moments are fun, although you're always scared during those moments because a part of your brain is is thinking. You know, while I'm dicking around with this stuff, uh, we're 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 getting further and further away from being on schedule. So you know, because the the only really important thing I do, my show runs just fine, uh, 800 miles away in Albuquerque, New Mexico, without me, uh, due to the wonderful uh, producers that I have uh, on site there and the wonderful cast and and department heads and crew. It it works just fine without me. Uh, I hate to say. Uh, but but the most important thing is being in that writer's room and, and, and breaking story with the six writers. So, But the least fun part, but the most important. Right? So, so yeah. true. <laughs> Julie, you're nodding your head through all it's, of this. I mean, everything you just said is so, so powerfully true because, <laughs> you know, for me, I came up, I was, a, I was a producer girl. Like, I was Wes Craven's assistant on Scream. I was there. It was my first movie I ever did. And, and I was, like, fetching the laundry and the coffee. And I was part of it and part of the world of watching the movie get made. And, and I wasn't a writer until, truthfully, like, I, I did not become a television writer until about six years ago. Um, so for me, the idea that this entire world is operating in Atlanta for us without me and I'm missing it is heartbreaking and so every now and then when I get to like the depth of despair of the writing which is cyclical and frequent in about every seven days (laughs) sometimes if I can't take it anymore I will just pack up and I will go to Atlanta because to be able to even though they can do it without me, which is tragic, and they do it brilliantly, brilliantly well without me, I need to be there to be part of it and I need to be there to sit on that set or even be in the production office or sit in a hotel room in another city and write something and then go out for drinks with the cast or the crew. Like, I just need to feel like all of this is for somebody and for something and there's, a, there's a, something to hold on to because th- there is nothing fun about writing. And I know it sounds like, oh, wah, wah, but like, it's horrible. It is... It is hurt people go both ways. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, look, I... I feel I go through a, a process every single time, and it's I hate myself, I hate everything, I hate all of this. Um, yeah. It's never, it sucks. I'm never going to get through the other side. I typically cry regularly when I get to the dark place. I'm stressed out all the time. And then there's that one moment, and this is if I were to target the fun, it's this. <sighs> it's very short, but it, there's that one moment when you are in your deepest, darkest, darkest place, and then all of a sudden you like hit your zone. And you got music on, and for me, often, I got a glass of wine poured, and, and I hit the zone, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait, I see it. And then it just starts happening. And the moments when it starts happening, and you're just keeping up, trying to keep up with your fingers, you know, as opposed to second-guessing every choice, that's fun. That's glorious. But in a 22-episode season, when, you know, and you're doing this every seven days, you spend a lot more time crying than you do smiling. <laughs> But that is the fun part right there. 
Jeff, you're nodding. Uh, well, I've already talked at length about how little you're, I enjoy writing. And you're, um, the crying uh, you've articulated it. it very, very well. Um, I will. I do. For, well, let me just say the headline is the thing I enjoy the most is collaboration. Uh, it's why I write television. It's just the opportunity to work with a group of other smart people in a writer's room and bounce ideas off them and have them top me or for me to top them or like make each other laugh or surprise each other. The thing I will miss most about Desperate Housewives is the extraordinarily good room we have. And they're just great people. And I've spent an alarming amount of the last 10 years with them um, as I spent an alarming amount of the previous 10 years with the Will and Grace room. I just love those people. Um, and I love the collaboration with actors. You know, as I've moved into directing, as I know you have as well, um, I've, come to experience, I've come to experience how, how much joy and how much surprise and delight you can get from an actor taking something in a direction you never would have anticipated or how good you feel when you're able to help an actor to something. Uh, it, you know, that, the give and take is all, that's why I love doing this. Um, it, that's a hundred percent of why I do it. Um, there are those wonderful moments in writing, which for me is nothing but pain and self-loathing occasionally punctuated with the only analog I can think of is if you imagine like a clothesline, which a million knots have been, to- to- you know, have been tied in it. And suddenly you pull and you realize they're all slip knots and it's just a clean line and you just suddenly see where you need to go. It sometimes happens when you're writing, and it's so beautiful. You feel like the hand of God has touched you on the forehead. It's, it's the most amazing thing, but it never, ever, it's immediately, you know, the self-loathing jumps on you right after that. But the other thing, I'm sorry, I'm taking too, too much time, but finally, I always go for the hardest possible thing to take on. I always, on Will and Grace, I would always choose the hardest stories, the ones with the most finesse, the ones the biggest degree of difficulty, because I always felt so much incredible joy when I pulled it off yeah. with help. You know, I always, had, I always had those great writers and those great actors to backstop me. Desperate Housewives is the same way. But I would always be drawn toward the, the conundrum episode, the impossible episode. You know, the Will and Grace that I wrote that, that I think got the most attention was the 80s flashback episode that we did, which was this show back. You know, it was a one hour. It was talking about the bedrock of the series, which is how Will and Grace came to know each other. And so it was going to be really, really hard. But that's why I wanted to do it. Because if you pull off an easy one, that's like, who cares? But you pull off a hard one. You feel good about yourself yeah, <laughs> without having to go on the internet. Pride. <laughs> Pride so equals fun. Yes. Josh. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty much all been covered. I mean, I, I, I think I might like writing more than some because I might hate myself more all the rest of the time. <laughs> so I think that when I'm actually at the computer, I feel... Um, that I'm doing something, uh, you know, and I so I walk around all day building up the most pretty ball of hate towards myself that I can find, which is at this point because I'm a pro, I can do like that. <laughs> um, and you know, 200 tweets later, I, um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I put my headphones on or whatever, turn the music on, or and and you know, I love to write. I do love to write. I don't breaking stories hard. Writing is hard. But, I mean, I've been a writer since I was six years old. I mean, I don't have another skill. So I better, you know, I mean, I like, I like that. That's a good feeling. I type all day, even when I'm not typing. I, it drives my wife crazy. If, I have my, if we're in a movie and I have my hand on 
her hand, I'm, I, I ghost type the dialogue of movies. Wow. I love that. alternate lines that might be better. <laughs> or I, or wow, what's I in my head that. or what I'm working on. And so, and I, I type. Awesome. And I've tried, I've actually trained myself to mentally just think of the digits so that I don't drive her crazy. But I will. That's I, great. So it's just, it's great. You know, I don't know. I love hearing that. That's cool. great. Uh, all right. I'm certain you guys have questions. Remember that questions begin with a W or an H, not with an I. <laughs> we all love these shows. You don't have to open with that. We assume that's why you're here. Uh, also, if you would, please keep your questions somewhat general so that anyone on the panel can answer them. Obviously, we're going to get into some you know, show-specific stuff, and that's fine. But as a rule, you know, try to say somewhat general. Uh, and finally... Uh, I will hold the microphone to you. Do not touch my microphone. <laughs> Hi. What would you say was the hardest part about not just writing but creating your shows, and how did you overcome it? Uh, the hardest part, uh, I, I have to say, I was, I was, gosh, the hardest part, uh, I was very, very lucky with Breaking Bad. It was um, uh, an idea that, in hindsight, I often say, you know, it's the old thing. The scientist always said, "There's no reason on paper a bumblebee should not be able to fly because of the the ratio of the the wing surface to the blah blah." Now, on paper, there's no reason Breaking Bad should exist. Uh, uh, it was that uh, was the hardest part. Shoot, I, I want to answer your question properly. It was all it all feels pretty painless in hindsight, but then that's that thing about the pain fades uh, that I was saying earlier. What was the hardest part? Um, hardest part, hardest part. Uh, it was all. Did the uh, pilot present itself in a very clear way? Did you know what the pilot had to be? Did the, I mean, the character you talked about a little bit already, so you kind of knew who Walter White was. Uh, it was uh, the pilot. Uh, it, it, you know, it was weird because they said to me, AMC was such a pleasure to work with. Uh, the, the show had been turned down all over town. Everyone had said no, and I thought it was dead, and I thought I'll revisit this at a certain point, and I'll maybe make it into a movie. Uh, two-hour story somewhere, an indie movie instead of a TV show. And suddenly, lo and behold, like a, like a knight on a white horse <laughs> came riding AMC, and they said, we want to we wanna suddenly stop showing Short, short Circuit 2 over and over again. <laughs> and we want to put on our own scripted programming, and we've got this thing called Mad Men that's about to start. And, uh, and uh, would you like to do your pilot, and would you like to direct it yourself? I mean, it was like Kramer and Seinfeld. It was falling ass backward into good fortune. Wow. Uh, it was, it'll never happen again, and it never happened before to me. It had nothing but, you know, bone-crushing defeat and, 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 and denial, you know, before. And it'll go back to that shortly after we do 16 more episodes of this. But for this one brief shining moment, mm. you know, uh, it was uh, what was the hardest part? Uh, <laughs> it was all it was all, uh, you know, I, I guess showing up at six in the morning on that first day of, of shooting the pilot, being the director, driving up, uh, being driven up by Teamster and seeing all these trucks parked. Uh, the sun was just coming up. And I'm thinking, you know, very quickly, all eyes are going to be on me, including the eyes of some excellent, excellent actors and, an, and a double Oscar-winning cinematographer mm. who's going to, you know, eat me for breakfast if I don't at least act like I know what I'm doing. That was that scary moment before you jump into the ice-cold pool or jump off the cliff into the ice-cold pool. You know, that, that was the scariest, hardest part. But once you, once you get going, and uh, God bless you all, I hope you all get the same experience. It's scariest before you jump into the pool. Uh, once you're once you're there on the set, you know. Uh, once you're there, and you're the same thing. Driving to work, the writers' room the first day. A bunch of writers, most of them I'd never met before. 
Uh, are they going to think I'm an idiot? Are they going to Are they going to listen to me? Are they going to go to the bathroom without being asked? Uh, <laughs> you know. But uh, you know, it it all works out. It's uh, the, the the hardest part is the just before. I've jumped out of not not often, but I've jumped out of planes before skydiving. The scariest part is the ride up. Once you're up there uh, and the, they open the door and there's this you know 140 mile an hour wind whipping through, you go numb and then you just act on autopilot and you do it. But at the scariest part is the, the overthinking, uh, is, you know, riding to the set the first day, driving to work the first day. That's, that's the hardest part. Uh, I touched on it a little bit earlier, um, so I won't say too much more. But I think that for, for myself and for Kevin, it was less uh, the external elements around us that, would, that were difficult and more the difficulty that we, like, challenged in for each other. Um, one, obviously, I said, you know, just trying to find the voice of the show between the two of us so that it could be ours. Um, but also just this this pathological desire to be great, which I know sounds really, like, like lofty and stupid. But we just really wanted to be great because we knew there were so many things about the show that could be bad. You know, there was, like, we were the Twilight ripoff. We were the, the third vampire show. We were this. And, you know, Kevin has had a pretty r- remarkable career. And... Certainly, I didn't want to be the one that was like, hey, let's go do this vampire ripoff show. And then, like, let's really just, like, you know, you know, take you down that path. So we wanted to be fantastic. And when you want to be great, you kind of become a crazy person and you become really obsessive and really self-loathing in a lot of ways. And you fight a lot and you, you stay up till 5 o'clock in the morning yelling at each other and, and you know, crying and, you know, all those things that... You alienate a lot of people along the way, and you and you you isolate yourself from everybody else. And so, it we had to find uh, Kevin. I had to find how do we do this more functionally. And <laughs> I don't know if we found it ever, but you know, I mean, we did definitely like ha- have to get through the kind of workaholic, obsessive, get over yourself kind of process to get to a point where we could then look and say, oh, look, there's a whole team of people here who are who are here to help and they're you know and it's working and this show is working so like let's let's just like let that drive us a little bit so that we don't have to hurt ourselves so much Mm. uh jeff what about on your new pilot well i mean the, 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 the challenge for me i mean well the challenge for me is always meeting my extraordinarily high expectations of how i want it to be i mean i totally here in what you just said. I completely agree with that. You just have an idea of how you want it to sound or what you want it to look like. And you, you hold yourself to extraordinarily high standards and you really, really want that so badly. And meeting that is hard. Um, you know, it's the other thing is that, that I, I find, you know, on, on something that I've created, I always feel I used to have a short wave set when I was, a, you know, when I was a teenager and you'd tune in a station from Czechoslovakia or, you know, halfway across the world and you'd, you'd, there'd be so much static and you'd be trying to stay tuned to that frequency. And so for me, it's trying to bring in the station that the show broadcasts on. You know what I'm saying? Like not letting it become the thing you just worked on or the movie you just watched or the show it kind of reminds you of or the show you know they're going to compare it to, but just the thing that you really, really want it to be. And like getting all the static out of your head and all the other voices that tell you what they think it should be. Um, It's always like staying tuned into that. This show had a challenge because it was about – it was based on the story of two real people. And I wanted to respect – 
the two women and the man that it was based on, but they had to be their own characters and they had to have their own comedic sensibility and their own point of view. And so that was challenging. I'd never done that before. And finally, and this is something I'm still learning and I don't think I'm very good at it, I never know how much to compromise with the suits. I just don't know how much. Uh, I have... Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. My instinct, I so identify with Josh in this regard because my instinct is to think they're totally idiots and that they're trying to ruin it. Um, and so, and I have to keep that at bay because they are at their best. I've worked with some great executives. At their best, they're very, very smart audience members. And they can give you insight into aspects of your story that are opaque or confusing or under-illuminated. And so when they're really good, they help you make it better in a really meaningful way. But there's a lot of bad ones. And uh, there's a lot of bad notes. And they can mess with your head and send you down roads you really shouldn't have gone. Uh, and so I have a terrible time sorting out the good and the bad. I'm really, it's still something that I grapple with, um, is knowing what, what a good note is like. And I still, like I said, still, still struggle with Josh, was that your hurdle on this new pilot? You know, <sighs> <laughs> my, my new pilot is, is um, challenging because it's an idea that could go wrong so quickly, uh, especially at the network level, um, that I'm terrified of what will happen to it. It's a spy show, and everyone, and it, they put it in deadline, they say, it's a female spy show, and everyone goes, oh, it's like Alias or Covert Affairs, and I just nod my head, and I go, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> my show is about a woman who has been working for 10 years for the CIA as a honey trap. She has sex for the government to get mm. information. Oh. That's the show. What, what night's that on? Wow. I didn't read that on Nicky Fink. <laughs> and we're looking for a director. Uh, uh, they never put it in the papers. I don't say anything about it. We, uh, this is the first time I've ever said it actually out loud. They don't, uh, they, they, the closest they've gotten is said, she has a special skill set. You know? <laughs> uh, that's what they'll say. Wow. What I always say is she'll go the extra six inches. Um, but not the extra three. Um, so it's a, and it's and it's a very but it's a very grown up show. It's very it's very much about uh, politics and sexual politics and the politics of, of, of sex and it's it's not it's a show that's a metaphor for a lot of different things that I'm interested in in the world and um, it's there's a very, very small window through which to wriggle in order to get the show to work and not, you know, have it be a disaster. Mm. And, I mean, casting, how they market it, you know, what yeah. tagline is on that fucking poster, you know, every, and, and it's... Probably not the six inches. Probably not the six inches line. I know, I know. I've come up with a lot of bad ones. That's my worst. But, um, and so, you know, I wake up, I mean, I... I I wake up way before my alarm clock every day going, oh, how are they going to, how are we going to fuck this up today? You know, because it's, it's right there on the line and I know that and I've had, I, I mean, I sit there and stare at it and go, have I written this, the, you know, have I written this the way that, you know, if we shoot it right is right because it's, um, if it's wrong, it's going to be really wrong and it's going to mm. be the opposite of the show. I mean, it couldn't, it could go as far opposite from what I want it to be uh, as possible and, uh, and it might be, uh, you know, on the air, <laughs> you know, in that way. And, and it's and it's hard. And I've gotten very, um, you know, it, it, it's it's hard for me. And I'm very passionate about it. And I, you sit down and you meet with actresses, you know, because you know, it's kind of you're trying to get these offer only actresses because this is a big, meaty part. And you, the actress comes in and they sit down and you know you realize five minutes into the coffee, all they want you to tell them is, 
you're going to protect me, right? Like you're not – I'm not going to regret like mm. going down this road with you because we all know that we're going down a, a very windy one. Um, mm. So uh, the hardest part is, yeah, is, is not, not being uh, vilified <laughs> for what I'm trying to do. Hi. Um, I'll start by directing this at Vince, and hopefully it will organically – you guys can add your – you know, tidbits from your shows. Um, my question is about research, especially for a world like, the, like you know, the, the legal world of crystal meth. How did that describe um, how the research process um, occurred and how that fit in with your whole writing process? Oh, good question. Uh, the, the nutshell answer is that, and the thing that excited me about writing about this, you know, once I, you know, once that idea snapped into my brain, is I know nothing about crystal meth. I mean, I know more now. Uh, but when, when I, oh, it's good. No, uh, that's, that's a joke. It's very terrible. It's, uh, um, I, what, what excited me uh, in a nutshell was that I, uh, I, I could very easily see myself through the main character's eyes. I, uh, like I was saying earlier, uh, he was having a midlife crisis. He, uh, thank God, I don't know, knock on wood, I don't even like saying it out loud. I don't know what it is to be diagnosed with a terrible disease, uh, uh, but... I could put myself in his brain pretty readily, and I guess the answer is that he knew nothing about crystal meth when he started, uh, nor did I. Uh, I very quickly uh, found uh, uh, recipes for it within 90 seconds, three minutes on, on Google, on, on the Internet. Um, you know, it's, it's all out there. Uh, but the research process uh, became sort of the process of, of Walt's you know, seeing things through Walt's eyes. He, he, he learned about his cancer. Uh, we had help from uh, oncologists, real-life oncologists. One of my writers, George Masters, has a brother named Dr. Dean Masters, who's a radiation oncologist, who was very helpful. Uh, it, we, it, we, I have wonderful help from my assistants, uh, Gordon and Jen, and, uh, and uh, Kate Powers uh, before that, uh, who was with us. I have this help uh, with folks uh, reaching out to people, which I'm not very good at them. I can find stuff all day long on the Internet, but I reaching out to folks, uh, I get kind of shy about doing that, but I've had wonderful help from assistants. But the research process is one of, 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 of starting with zero information. It, it would be very daunting to me to start writing a story about a guy who suddenly, you know, right from the get-go was an expert in his field, unless it happened to be a field I knew something about, and there are so few. <laughs> so... Uh, but uh, that, that the research process is one of, of learning very slowly. That's fairly representative. Also, yeah. there are researchers on shows. Yeah. <laughs> Don't touch my mic. Um, hi. Um, I was just wondering, when you first sit down in the writer's room, um, how much of the season do you actually break, especially with serialized shows where every episode is tied into the other? Uh, yeah, we talked about this a little bit when uh, Gould was here on Breaking Bad, which go download that episode of the podcast. Um, and I think you addressed it a little bit on Vampire Diaries, which is zero. Yeah, zero. <laughs> you, you get, if, you can get a good, if you can get a good three weeks, which you don't get, but if you could get a good three weeks, you, you in that three weeks with a room full of people, you can start from nothing and by the end of that three weeks have a good sense of what your first six are going to be, what the big tent poles of the season are going to be, and kind of know where you're heading for the finale. And that's about as good as you're going to get in three weeks. And nobody ever gets more than that. So, I, I hate to... Don't hate you're me. you're on cable. Don't hate me. This is what I love about cable. It's not the money. It's because uh, it's, it's not. Compared to network, it's, it's, uh, it's a small fraction. What's wonderful about it is only having 13 episodes. Yeah. And what's wonderful about it is having a lot of lead time. And if you are about to get a show... Uh, on the air, do everything you can 
fight as hard as you can fight because they are always going to be penny-wise and pound-foolish in every regard, and that, that includes uh, pre-production time. Even if it means taking less personal money, whatever it takes, beg, bar, and steal, get as much lead time as you possibly can because that lead time, when it's just you and your writers in a room, it's invaluable. We, have, we're, we started uh, November 14th. Uh, in our writer's room. Uh, we don't start shooting our first episode till March, <sighs> the end of March. Wow. It's, it's insane. It's, it's unheard of, like Julie was just saying. Yeah, it, it's but great. it's also so great. Cool. And I would, I would, uh, there were, I would, I would, I, and that's how. Josh is furious right now. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't blame you. But, I, but I've you got don't, tears in my eyes. Right. Like, <laughs> Are you, are you meant to have all as many done as possible before you start I, I would or? love in a perfect world have them all. We, we've never had them all done, but I'd love. And the breaking is the hardest part. The writing is. You, is, you guys break yeah. collaboratively. Absolutely. Right, we, I want every, all hands on. I don't even want them leaving the room. I just want them all hands <laughs> on deck. Uh, you know, God bless them. I get six excellent writers, and it is a real labor of love for all of us. And, I, and the hardest part is breaking the, the episodes. They take on average about two weeks each to break, and that is filling an entire cork board, which represents one episode with the index cards. That's the hard part, but we all of us, if we've all been in the room describing every last damn detail we can imagine related to that episode, if any one of them got hit by a meteor or me too or, you know, struck with typhus or whatever, you know, any other writer who had been in that room could write that particular episode. Writing, there's a lot of invention uh, yeah. in the writing process, but the real Heart of it sure. is, is facing that blank page. Yeah. Julie spoke of. We all face it together. And you, I, I wish you had said what uh, you had said, Jeff. The collaboration is the best part of writing a TV. If you're surrounded by good people who you like, who you look forward to talking with every day and being with, the collaboration is the best part. How do you get it done? <laughs> I, this, I swear I'm not trying to be funny. How do you get it done without that inherent deadline? That is that thing that makes you panic so much that you get it done. How do you? Actually it, it's, it feels it? like I, I am so ridiculous ridiculously spoiled now, but it feels like a real deadline. The end of March feels like it's looming, like it's breathing down my neck right now. We are breaking episode three, and we'll start again uh, tomorrow, and I want to have at least six of them broken. Mm. And we're only shooting eight this time around, and then we're going to have a five-month hiatus and then shoot the last eight. <laughs> I know, it's insane. <laughs> I, I, don't hate me. I don't. <laughs> But, but yeah, but I, you, you've earned your way uh, to that. Fuck. You have, if you I had have. that kind of time, I could write that fucking. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Oh I take back everything I've ever said on the internet about how awesome that show. Is. <laughs> Spoiled bunch of pigs. This, this is the key to it, and this is why I can never go back to network. Because network, I had some of the best times of my life writing for network. Seven years on the X Files. I look back. I do not. I, I, it was like it was a different human being. I don't know how you guys do it. It's my hat is off to anyone who does network show, because it's just you gotta. For me, you, I gotta have that time to think about where it's all headed. I don't. Doesn't mean, by the way, that we know every beat of what we're still there's in, you know fear and invention and facing the blank surface of the cardboard every single day. But it's like we know our waypoints because we spent most of November and part of December thinking, you know, in broad strokes, where is this all going for the final 16 we're doing? But it's just, it's worth, it's priceless having that mm. pre-production time. Because once production starts, and uh, pre-production starts uh, mid-March, early March, the phone is going to start ringing. I'm going to be, you know, you know what, do you, what set do you want to put up? What uh, should we, uh, this, this one, uh, whatever, you know, endless, endless <laughs> questions. And this is, 
the gravy time now where the phone is not ringing in the yeah. office. So. It is the fun part. You're right. If there is one fun part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's nice of you. Um, I'm sorry. That's all the time we have for questions. Uh, some of these guys have to get uh, running. But I'm very curious about this because we always end by asking the writers what they are watching on television and uh, what their rooms are talking about and things like that. They're all watching Breaking Bad. Vince, what are you watching on television? <laughs> I'm watching all the shows. These these wonderful ah, folks. Well done. I uh, uh, what am I watching? Right. I, I don't have a regular uh, uh, appointment TV uh, at, at this point uh, because I I, I uh, you know what it is. It's kind of it's kind of a busman's holiday to go home and watch TV. Yeah. When when I think these these folks can 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 I, I would, I've done not to speak for them, but I it, there's a, there's a little bit of a busman's holiday feeling when you when you spend all day in a writer's room breaking story and then to go home and watch other shows that that do it just as well or better. It's just like you know I've I've been doing this for ten hours already today, so I, I channel. I don't really use the TiVo like I should. I I, ta- I channel surf a lot and I watch a lot of uh, Good Eats on the Food Network. <laughs> And I watch a lot of modern marvels and Discovery Channel, and I and, it, and I and I think I gravitate toward non-scripted documentary style stuff because it it feels not because it's better than script. It's just because it feels like I've spent all day in in a attempting invention, attempting invention, and this is the closest I'm going to get to if not interacting, at least observing what the real world is up to. Mm. You know, I watch an hour on, on the history of carbon on, the, on modern marvels, and it just fascinates me. You know, I just, it, it, and watching a guy operate a skip shovel, and, you know, I just, I'll never do that, but it looks kind of like fun. <laughs> you know, I just, that's, that's kind of what I, I, I kind of, I, I, I channel, it's, it's, very, it's very disrespectful viewing because it's just <laughs> skipping all around, but I, I don't mean it to be. It's relaxing. Uh, Julie, very quickly, what are you watching? What's your room talking about? Um, I, uh, what is my room talking about? They're, they, they watch everything. So it's on any given day, whether it's like The Bachelorette to The Killing, they've, they've got it covered. I, um, I only usually get a chance to really catch up over holidays. And so this last holiday, sat and watched uh, like 14 episodes straight of Downton Abbey, which I love. And then watched the entire first season of Game of Thrones about two days later. And... Uh, that was just so thrilling because I'm, I'm an obsessive television fan, so to have the opportunity to watch 10 episodes in a row is, over a day and a half is great. And as, as my friend pointed out, they're really kind of the same show, you know, um, <laughs> weirdly. Because they're both family shows. And when, you, when it all comes down to it, so is The Vampire Diaries. So to be able to look and say, like, a family paradigm of, like, you know, a set in, a, in an abbey in, in 1912 London or set in, like, what is essentially, you know, the Shire, and uh, and then in some small town, and the, the the relationship stuff, and the power struggles, and the politics that come out of that on different levels. Are, it's all kind of emanating from the same same nugget, which is family, like mm. The Sopranos. So yeah. that was a fun discovery for me to, yeah. to realize that. Yeah. Jeff, oh, uh, you know we we don't really have a big room show right now. Uh, we haven't really had one since this is a long time ago. But Studio Sixty was our favorite uh, show. Yeah. <laughs> to make fun of. Uh, um, uh, we do love Breaking Bad. We um, uh, and uh, are just waiting for the next set of them, Vince. Please, yeah. please. Um, I did watch Downton Abbey, and I liked it a lot. Um, and I illegally downloaded the Christmas special, which is also quite good. Um, and, I got, and I went through Game of Thrones really fast, and that was a big topic for a while in the room. There was an episode that I pitched. I said, okay, this episode is Game of Thrones with Carpool. Um, uh, 
but I, you know, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll tell you about a show if there's any, if you can find this on BitTorrent or whatever. There's a British show called Fresh Meat, which is on Channel 4, which is about uh, freshmen in college um, that is unbelievably good. It's from the creators of Peep Show, which is a British show that I also revere. Um, and if you can find that anywhere, I don't even think it's out on DVD yet in the UK. But I, I, my wife and I worked our way through that, and we really, really enjoyed it. But I'm waiting for Amazing Race to come back. That's about it. <laughs> Josh. Um, I'm waiting for Breaking Bad to come back also. But um, we watched a lot. I watched a lot of Downton Abbey. We watched, and uh, I, I mean, I love um, Luther uh, a lot. Um, I worship at the uh, Idris Elba. Um, and Sherlock, uh, the BBC Sherlock. Um, I'm really excited to see the CBS version of that show. <laughs> <laughs> really, really looking forward to uh, the Americans just taking it. Uh, Colonizing that show. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all the time we have. Uh, thanks to Josh Friedman, Jeff Greenstein, Julie Clack, and Vince Gilligan. Thanks to Ed and everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics and to 826LA. Now leaving Nerdist.com.